0: chapter 4. Tonight's message is called Accounting 101. I suck at math. I don't know how you guys do. Uh, Most of the room is made up of Perryites and Perry has one of the lowest math scores in the country, so I don't know how we're going to do tonight. I'm allowed saying that because I went to Perry and I suck at math. That's not insulting. Maybe things changed. Some of them looked at me like that was the most offensive thing anyone's ever said in the history of mankind. Alright. Alright. If you guys want to keep going, I got nowhere to be afterwards tonight. Romans chapter 4, accounting 101, it must have something to do with Romans chapter 4. We're going to do some math tonight. We're going to do some taking some inventory. Follow along with me on your study sheet. All right, good, everyone's ready. Tonight we conclude the first quarter in our study of Romans. We've been getting our tail whipped all study long as we've looked at mankind's sin throughout the whole world. In the first two chapters, we saw righteousness is required to be made right with God. That is literally what the word means, to be right with God. But last week was a turning point in our favor as righteousness was revealed in the fullness of Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Now, for chapters 4 and 5, we will see the need for righteousness to be personally received personally received as we take a deeper dive into what actually happens at the moment of salvation there's not a doubt in my mind that by and large most of you in this room are genuinely saved your sins have been justified someone remind me from last week it was mentioned again and again what does the word justified mean what was the definition we used Kendall? Just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That is an easy, simplistic way of remembering it. Absolutely. And legally speaking, it means that you have been declared not guilty. (laughs) It means you have been declared not guilty. It means that you have been made holy. You have been made clean after we have previously looked at each and every single one of us are unclean. Each and every single one of us are unholy. So the object or the the doctrine rather of justification is to make one holy, to make one clean, to make one right with God. So we're gonna see our need for righteousness to be personally revealed or received, sorry, as we take a deeper dive into what actually happens at the moment of salvation. That's where I was going with that. Sometimes you just have to reread it again. I have no doubt in my mind that many of you in here, your sins have been justified. You have been declared not guilty. But over the next two weeks, we're going to take a deeper dive into what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like from your standpoint? Because while most of you in here may be genuinely saved, maybe you're like me, where at the moment of salvation, you didn't realize and comprehend everything that the Bible has to say of what actually happened to you and how awesome and how, uh, just the the massive scope and the magnitude of this situation and what it means for your eternity, and even more importantly, what it means for you right now as you walk with God. If you grasp these concepts that we're going to talk about tonight, next week, and the week after in chapter 6, it'll change the way you walk with God. You won't look at the same struggles that you face ever the same again. You won't struggle with the same anxieties, depressions, sins, struggles, fears. You won't struggle with those things the same way again because you will have fully understood, based upon what the Bible says, not me, what actually happened to you the moment you prayed to receive Christ if your faith was not in vain, if you genuinely believed. Because that is something that most Christians never grasp. For the entire time of their lives. For the entirety of their time walking on this planet. And since they don't realize fully what actually happened to them, their sins, their past, their present, their future, they don't know what is expected of them so that they're able to fulfill the mission that God has given each and every single one of us who are saved. We comprehend this. We grasp this. It'll change the way you walk. We're getting to the point in our, in our series that was really the impetus and the desire and the motivation for why I wanted to do this study. To take a look again at what the Bible actually says actually happened to you. Because, man, the scope of it, it's beyond comprehension. So, point number one we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Romans. And simply, if you had to summarize it, it's the past. The past. Here we are in the New Testament, and God begins this thing in chapter 4 by looking at the Old Testament, letter A, Abraham and David. And what we're going to see is that even those guys knew that salvation was by faith. No, I didn't plan for this to go hand in hand with this past Sunday's lesson in how to study the Bible, but it does fit like a glove. So with that that said, let's go ahead and look at verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the faith, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by what? Works. Works, He hath whereof the glory, but not of God. But not before God. You see, even Abraham knew that his works could not justify him. Sure, he'd be able to boast, Man, I was able to keep the entire law, even though the law wasn't even written yet. I just knew from the conscience of my heart that God wrote the law, wrote right right and wrong. Knowing good and evil on my heart, my conscience bears witness to that, and man, I kept it. He could boast before men, but not before God, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We just saw that last week on your outline. You see, this is further proof that it was never about good works, even in the Old Testament. Never. You can check out Genesis chapter 12 later. It's, it, the analogy that we used on Sunday was Caleb. When Caleb came up to get the pez and I told him that it was already back there, he just had to make a long journey with it. See, God told Abraham, man, I am going to multiply your seed and it is going to be, you see the stars? Can you number them, Abraham? Uh, one, two, three, no, I can't. Yeah, that's how much your seed is going to be. That's how many children you are going to have, he tells him. All you have to do is just go to the place that I've prepared for you. Where? Well, just start walking, and you'll find it. The fact that he started walking showed he trusted God. He believed God. That's what Genesis 12 talks about. You can check that out later. But I like this passage here. See, it's not religion. It's a relationship. Just look at Andy's shirt for that later. It's never been about religion. It's never been about good works. Check out Jeremiah 9 on the screen here. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care about your GPA average because neither does God, according to this verse. 2. 9. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how much you can deadlift. I don't care how much you can hang clean. Really, nothing on that one, Andy? Okay. It's more than you. <laughs> let not the rich man glory in his riches. I don't care what kind of house you come from. I don't care what kind of home you grew up in. Neither does God. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and what? Know it. Knoweth me. Jeremiah, Old Testament passage, tucked away right there. It's never been about religion. God has always been interested in a relationship. He wants us to know him that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. Hey, do you want to care about the things that God cares about? Do you want to know what God is interested in? Not how many Bible verses you've ever memorized. Not that you have a perfect streak of coming to church. Not in how many good deeds you did this week. No. Do you know him? That is what He delights in. And even more importantly, does He know you? Many people are going to say on Judgment Day, Lord, I've done all these works. And God's going to say, you never knew me. Or He's not going to say, you never knew me. No, God is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because it was all just religion, not a relationship to them. Point two. So what does the Bible say regarding Abraham or how Abraham was declared righteous? Good question. Somebody read verse 3 for me in Romans 4. Jack. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Oh, I love that verse. Number one, just because what a great question to ask. It should never be, hey, what does this church believe? Hey, what does this pastor think? Hey, what does this main guy in Christianity, what is his top book, what does he say? It should never be about a man. The question you should always find yourself asking is, what does the Bible say? What saith the scripture? Great question, Paul. Thanks for asking it. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You can check this passage out in Genesis 15. You know what's going on here? God, once again, is coming to Abraham, and He's about to make a covenant. He's about to start a new dispensation. I refer you back to last Sunday's message. Thank you. He comes to Him, and He says, Abraham, I'm going to do this great thing through you. Do you trust Me? According to what we just read, Abraham believed God and it, what? His belief, his faith was counted as righteousness or counted for righteousness. Look at verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. Man, you can keep working all your life. You can keep soaring up all of these good works. You can keep digging and digging into the earth, thinking that your wealth is going to be made with your own hands, thinking that your righteousness is going to come with your own good works that you have built. And all you're going to find at the end of your life as you dig and you dig and you dig is that you're nothing more than just a grave digger. The more you keep building into this earth and working with your hands and trying to work up your own righteousness, all you're going to find is that you're just digging a hole for yourself. Because no amount of works can save. You're just reckoning up the debt. You're reckoning up debt. The reward to Abraham, it wasn't reckoned of of debt. It was of grace. Look at verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but what? believeth on him that justifieth, makes holy, the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. So we have to break some things down here, because in these three verses we read, I come across three terms that are used in accounting. They're used in mathematics. They are used in an accounting class. Out of curiosity, does anybody here take an accounting class? Do they still even offer that in school? I took it my senior year just because I needed a filler credit, and it was incredibly boring. Okay. So hopefully this part won't be as boring. But again, the Bible uses these words, so let's check them out. What does the Bible say regarding how Abraham was declared righteous? We just read it. Here's some of the terminologies that God uses here in this passage on your outline. He says, counted. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You know what that word means? to take inventory. In other words, to see, do you have this in stock? Anybody go to order something on Amazon and find that it's completely out of stock? I know. Angers you. Ticks you off. Or you go to Chipotle and find they're out of stake. How are you out of stake? Make more. It's not that hard. You know what? They did not take proper inventory they didn't count to make sure that they had enough for what they needed abraham believed god and it says that his faith was counted unto him for righteousness see counted means to take inventory to ensure that you have all that you need all that you need I have up here on the screen word counted familiar verse hebrews chapter 11 talking about our man abraham by faith abraham when he was tried that means he was tested offered up isaac and he had that and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said that in isaac shall thy seed be called you guys know the story i won't belabor the point God told him, you're going to have countless children, so much so that you can't even number them in the stars, just like you can't number the stars. And then he comes to him in Genesis 22 and says, hey, you know your only son from which you're going to have a seed that is innumerable? I want you to go ahead and take your son and kill him. But see, it didn't shake Abraham. He didn't stagger at it. We'll see that in a little bit. Look at verse 9. Why? Accounting That God was able to raise him up even from the dead. For whence also we received him in a figure. He was a typology. He's a picture of what God the Father did to God the Son. Offered his only son up as an offering to sacrifice and pay the price for our sins. But you see, Abraham accounted that God was able to do that. He took inventory. He counted the cost. And he knew what God was able to do. So he did it. He followed through with his faith. Next on your outline, we see the word reckoned. Now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. What does that word mean? Reckoned means comparing two sets of records to make them in agreement with one another. It's the same thing with inventory. Well, the list here says I should have this in stock. But I look here on the shelf, and I don't have what the list said. The accounts are not reconciled. One says one thing, another shows something different. Reckoned. Comparing two sets of records, making sure they are in agreement. Up here on the screen, Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me, and he speaking of Christ, was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. See, what well, you don't realize that he was actually quoting Isaiah fifty-three twelve. Therefore will I divide him, Christ, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. When Christ died, he got something out of it. He got the spoils of his victory because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. See, in Luke 22, we just saw that He was counted with the transgressors. He was reckoned with them, and now we see He was numbered with the transgressors. And He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, you know what Christ did? He, who knew no sin, became it. He was no different than those two thieves that He was crucified with. He became one of them. He was numbered with them. He was reckoned with them. 2 Corinthians 5, two. Sorry. 2 Corinthians 5.19. To wit that God was in Christ. Reconciling. It's where we get that word reckoned. The world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. Remember that word from last week? It means to put onto someone else's account. Never mind, we're getting to that in a little bit. My weeks are running together. Their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So you see what God did here? The requirement and the standard to get into heaven is holiness. That's one account. He looks upon sinful mankind and sees, hmm, the accounts cannot be reconciled. When I count both of them up, one is holy, one is unholy. One is just, one is not just. Holiness is the standard to get into heaven. None of these people are. The accounts don't reconcile. So what God did is He came down and bridged the gap so that the unholy can be made holy. So that when He looks down upon you, if your sins have been justified and you have been declared legally not guilty of sin anymore, He doesn't look upon you as being unholy, unclean anymore. But I still sin every day. Yeah, we're getting to that in three, four weeks' time. And since he reconciled, what's another way we use that term reconciled? Reconciliation. Reconciled. They reconciled. Have you never used that word before? If two parties reconcile, that means that they were brought together. That there was a rift between the two of them. They kissed and made up, in other words. Ew. That's what reconciled means. God reconciled the world unto himself. He brought us back to him because of what his son on the, did on the cross for us. And as a result of that, those of us who are justified, he gave us the word of reconciliation that we would take this book out to the ends of the earth and show people how they can be made right with God too. For he hath made in to be sin for us who knew no sin that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know what guys, at the end of your life God's going to open up the books and it's going to be a book of books called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is not found in that book, the Bible says, according to Revelation, that He will take you and cast you into the lake of fire. He doesn't want that, obviously. He desires a relationship with you. We just saw that in Jeremiah 9. He loves you and came down here and died for you because He doesn't want to see that happen. But He must reconcile the two accounts. There's your account, and then there's the account of the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name is not found in there... If your sins have not been justified, that's what happens. The books have to match. The books need to be reconciled. Your account and His. Back on your outline here. That was Abraham, and more on him in a second. But what does the Bible say regarding how David was declared righteous? Give me a reader for verses 6-8. to Jamie. Uh, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Man, I love it. So this passage here in verses six to eight, it's literally quoting Psalm thirty-two. A Psalm written by David. Anybody want to take a stab in the dark as to when David wrote Psalm thirty-two? This is one of the other psalms that David wrote. Yeah, Jacob? Was he on the run? No. Close, though. He actually wrote a lot of psalms when he was on the run, though. I'm reading that currently in my devotions. This was written shortly after his sin with Bathsheba. Shortly after, he took a wife who did not belong to him, slept with her, and then once she was pregnant with his child, he concocted a plan to murder her husband, So that he could have her, not really so he could have her, more so so he could hide the fact that he had anything to do with this sinfulness. He tried to cover up his sin, he tried to hide and run away from it. He wrote this psalm after that Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Well, I guess now's the time we should probably cover what impute means. Look at it in your outline. It means to attribute or set to the account of someone else that which does not belong to them. Does that make sense? So in other words, let's say I have a million dollars, you have nothing in your bank account. And I decide to give you everything that's in my bank account into yours. I am imputing a million dollars onto your account. I am giving you... Or attributing to you that which does not belong to you. That's what imputation means. Now, knowing that definition, let's go back and read it again. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Do you realize that the moment that you, by faith, chose to trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ as payment for your sins, that God took every single ounce of righteousness that is in Him? Because remember, as we said last week, He is the embodiment of righteousness. He committed no sin, lived a perfect holy life. He took all of that righteousness. And the moment you prayed by faith to receive Him, He took all of it and put it into your account. Making you wealthy beyond your imagination. Making you to have what Romans 11 and Ephesians 3 talk about, the unsearchable riches of Christ himself on your behalf, on your account. And you didn't do a thing to get that. He did that 2,000 years before you were even born because of how much He loves you and because He desires you to know Him to have that relationship with Him it won't be imputed until you by faith choose to receive it but man what a blessing of God for Him to do that for us because we don't deserve it David Certainly didn't deserve after what he did. Man, it's a rags and riches story of Christianity. Check out Isaiah 45, 24 on the screen here. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength, not of me. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. Man, no one at school can touch you guys. If you're in here and you're genuinely saved, who gives a rip what any of them say? Let them be ashamed, because you have the righteousness of God in Him. Isaiah 54, 17 says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Are you a servant of the Lord? Here's your heritage. And their righteousness is of who? Me saith the who? Lord. I love it. Why isn't this talked about in every single church? Why are all the churches that say that you need to do good works in order to enter into heaven, why aren't they showing these verses in the Old Testament? There's nothing you could do. It was entirely of Him. It always has been of Him. Christian, do you realize your wealth right now? How much rich you are in Christ because of the moment you trusted by faith in the shed blood of Christ as payment for your sins? All of the righteousness of God, declaring you legally not guilty of crucifying Him, declaring you not guilty of the sins you committed today, yesterday, last week, all your life and for the remainder of your life, however many more years God gives you, not guilty. He looks at your account. And he sees the righteousness of my dear son is in this person's account. They are not guilty. No matter what they do. Now when you hear that, it'll cause two reactions, one of two reactions to you. It'll either humble you and cause you to be immensely grateful and cause you to want to walk closer with him so that you don't continue in sin or... It'll cause you to have a free for all. Because God sees me as not guilty, so I can get away with whatever I want. There are many Christians that live that way. Some of you probably are even living that way now. God will deal with you, and more on that in the chapters to come. But I'm telling you what, it's this stuff right here God taking everything that He has and giving it into your account. And not asking anything in return. When you realize that, it should change the way that you go about your daily life. It should cause you to take another look at the struggles you have, the fears you have, the anxieties you have, the sins you struggle with, the depressing thoughts that you have. And trust me, I'm there too. Even as it gets colder and more wintry out, it's going to increase for us. Whatever those things are, and I'm not dismissing any of them because they are real. They're legit things. We're going to have an enemy that we're going to talk about who's trying to get us to just be consumed with all of those things. That's why we need in Ephesians 5.26 the washing of the water of the word to just wash our mind out of all of that junk and get us focused and reminded on what He has already done for us every single day. When you reckon your need for Him every single day, it'll change the way that you live your life. It'll change the way that you come about your issues and your problems that you struggle with. At least it should. Hopefully these verses help you with that. Moving on, letter B. Next he starts talking about circumcision, this Old Testament Jewish ritual that they had. And you know what, to oversimplify it on your outline, circumcision is just an outward expression of what has already occurred inside in the heart. Does that sound familiar to anybody, that phraseology I use there? It's an outward expression of what's already happened in the heart. What is it, AJ? Baptism. Baptism. It's like, might want to emphasize that word, like baptism. In the sense that those of you guys who have gotten baptized, that water doesn't cleanse you, doesn't save you. Again, otherwise it'd be a work. It's just an outward expression of what's already happened inside of you. When Christ died and was buried, and you put your faith and trust in Him, you died and were buried. More on that when we get to chapter six. And when He rose again from the grave, you rose again to walk in newness of life. That happened to you spiritually, just as it happened physically with Christ. Circumcision. So He's talking about this now. Look with me in verse eight nine. Where did he read eight? Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? Or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? And here's the answer. Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Alright, so what's going on here? Point one on your outline. When God is talking about righteousness and Abraham being justified by faith, righteousness was imputed unto Abraham by faith, a fool. Fourteen years before he was even circumcised. Remember Genesis fifteen three. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Uh, again, not real good at math here. I went to prairie, but Genesis fifteen three does come before Genesis seventeen, right? Fifteen comes before seventeen. It wasn't rhetorical. Yes, it does. All right. If Genesis 17 is when Abraham got circumcised, did he get circumcised before or after he believed God? After. You guys shy that you're going to get the answer wrong? After. After. And why do we mention that? Again. Because there is such a push in Christianity today, Christianity falsely so called, that it is about your works that save you. Goodness gracious, do you guys not go to school with people who think that if they're good enough, that maybe, just maybe, they'll get their way to heaven when they die? I'm not just taking you through all of these verses ad nauseum to a a head-bashing-against-the-wall degree to bore you to death. I'm taking you through all of these verses and hitting the same things again and again, number one, because... Paul did in his great doctrinal dissertation on the faith because he wants people to get it. Because people don't get it. Because no matter how much man learns from history, what you find out at the end of the day is man learns nothing from history. He keeps repeating his same stupid mistakes over and over again. That's why some of you maybe struggle with the same sins that you struggle with over and over again. Some, not all. And no matter how many times Paul went through it, no matter how many times you guys pass out tracts, no matter how many times in conversations you get in with people, they still don't want to give up the fact that there's nothing that they can do to earn their way to heaven. Again, I mentioned the rich young ruler when Christ was talking with him. He's willing to justify himself. It is incomprehensible to most people that God would impute righteousness without works. They think, surely, I have to do something to earn my way, and the Bible clearly says again and again and again, as we've seen clearly now, you can't. So if you're struggling with knowing how to talk with some of your friends at school, you got study sheets, and you got podcasts that you can listen to to refresh yourself, and you can take these tactics to them because circumcision so many times in the new testament the old testament jews wanted to keep clinging to this work of circumcision and they missed what it was all about he again doctrinally works out through rightly dividing the word that it was only an outward expression of what happened in their heart number two circumcision was a permanent seal setting apart God's people from others evident to all. This is where the comparison to baptism stops, by the way. Because baptism does not permanently seal you into Christ. What does that according to Ephesians 1.13 and 4.30? Huh? <clears throat> Salvation. Well, even more specifically... In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that who? Holy Spirit Spirit of promise. And again in Ephesians 4, he says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You see, when an Old Testament Jew was circumcised, that sucker was permanent. There was no coming back from that. I think I made the point clear there. I don't need to go further on that, right? It's permanent? Okay. Same thing with salvation. You see, the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 that when you pray to receive Christ, your heart becomes circumcised in a way. That old, that old stony heart gets circumcised and you become a new creature. You become a new man according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And as a result, you are sealed. The seal that you guys have, though, is the Holy Spirit of God permanently indwelling inside of you. And as we've been seeing on Sundays for the last couple of weeks now, that is a unique gift that only believers for the last 2,000 years of history have had the privilege of having. The permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God and the fact Well, I mean, the fact that the Spirit of God is inside of you and the fact that it's permanent, that was the second thing. It's permanent. Man. Can others see that there's something different about you? Does the Spirit of God indwell you? If you've not been set apart, if people don't notice that there's something different about you, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you are, as a result of what happened inwardly first then maybe you don't have righteousness imputed unto you. And look at point three. It demonstrated that their faith was genuine as it was always a heart issue. Look with me in verses 11 and 12 in Romans 4. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, which is a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Again, his faith justified him, not the works that he might be the Father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the Father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but also who also walk in the steps of that faith of our Father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Again, demonstrated that this was a matter of the heart. Galatians 5:6, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. You know what matters? faith which worketh by love. Hey, remember when we looked at Jeremiah 9, 23-24 earlier, where it said that God desires a relationship? These are the very next two verses. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Gee, why is that? Egypt, Judah, Edom, the children of Ammon and Moab, and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the where. It's always been a heart issue. The outward religious act that so many churches build, so many religious ceremonies and acts based upon things like this that they read in the Old Testament taken out of context. They miss verses like this where it says it's always been about the heart. You can do all of the works on the outside that you want, but if you're dead inside, you're nothing more than a whited sepulcher, a whited tomb. You look good on the outside, but inside you're just full of dead bones. That's what he's saying here. Alright, point number two. We just covered the past. Talking about Abraham and David. Circumcision. How does all this work? And he makes the case that it was always by faith. That is what justified. The righteousness of God was imputed, counted, and reckoned by faith in the blood. Now we get to point number two. The promise. And here we read about Father Abraham and many sons. You don't need a finish Alright, do me a favor. Uh, hold your place here, but turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Now, we're going to camp out in Galatians chapter 3 for a little bit. And the verses in Romans I'm going to have here up on the screen for you guys. For a couple of them. Mostly because a lot of these verses we're about to read in Romans chapter 4. Paul brings up again in the book of Galatians, because some people needed to be told more than once. And like it or not, in today's day and age, some people need to be told more than once before it finally sinks in. So he mentions the same things in Galatians chapter 3, but gives new insight to it. So first we see in point number one, that the promise God gave to Abraham came 430 years before Moses and the law And it takes precedence, meaning that the promise that God gave to Abraham that I will increase your seed so that you can't even number the stars of the sky, so you won't be able to number your kids, your children, that is what's going to happen to you. Look at verse 13, Romans chapter 4 on the screen. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, good works, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Look on your outline again. Or I'm sorry, look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what he has to say to the church in Galatia. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenants. What's another word for covenant for those of you who are on Sunday? Think of a pez dispenser. No, it's not a hiccup, Andy. Dispensation. Another word for covenant there. And I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Again, Genesis 15, when the promise was given to Abraham and Abraham believed it by faith and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That was 430 years before Moses gave the Ten Commandments. So for people who think that by keeping the law and keeping the Ten Commandments will get them righteousness. Well, to do that would make the promise of God of none effect. It would disannul it. It would make it null and void. And you can't do that according to what the scripture says. Look at number 2. We saw verse 14 up there. He says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. You see, if the law, or works, could supersede the promise made by faith, then throw out the rest of your book. Throw out the rest of your Bible. You don't need it. You're in Galatians 3. You guys might not need to turn the page, but look up to the end of chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness, being declared legally not guilty, come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. It's like Pastor Aaron said a couple Sundays ago. If we could be saved by being good, then why did Christ have to die? Mm -hmm. Ask that question to someone tomorrow. Ask that question to someone tomorrow. If they have no answer, you got them on the ropes. Go for a one-two body shot to the ribs, and then knock them out. Spiritually speaking, Mm -hmm. you have them on the ropes. Remember, we saw last week in chapter 3 that these are the questions that when you ask, it stops their mouths. They have no excuse. They have nothing they can say. And then you get an opportunity to present the gospel, the true righteousness of God, to them. So you see, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. In other words, what's the point of Abraham being in our Bible? What's the point of Genesis 15? What's the point of Romans 3, 4, 5? If it's all of good works, what's the point of even coming here? Chuck the rest of the book, if that's the case. But it's not the case. Look back at chapter 3, verse 18. Again, he pleads this case a little bit further. Again, be watching to pick up more details here. For if the inheritance, salvation be of the law, it's no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serve it the law? Okay, Corey, we've been talking for weeks on end with chapter 2, chapter 3, and now chapter 4 about the law. The Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, Levitical law, good works in summary then what the heck is the point of it if it's no good anymore? That's what he's asking there. It was added because of transgressions. Because Abraham's sons and their sons and their sons got tired of waiting for the promise of the coming Messiah. And as a result of them getting tired of waiting upon God, like so many Christians today do, getting tired of waiting for His return, they lose sight of the fact that, oh yeah, God's coming back one day, just as 2 Peter 2 says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that they start to scoff at Him. My Lord delays His coming. He's not coming back after all. And they think it gives them some kind of license to live however they want. Happens all the time with Christians. Happens as people in this room. And it happens to some of you when you graduate here and you leave and you go off to college. I've seen it happen year after year after year after year. You see, this is why it's important that we go through a study like this and we learn doctrine. Because if you don't know why you believe what you believe, you too will find yourself asking, what's the point? You got to know why you believe what you believe and Paul is helping you here. So verse 19, Wherefore then then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, to whom the promise was made. Talking about Christ. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, mediator, that means a go-between. Again, you have God's record, and you have man's record. The accounts need to reconcile. Christ became a mediator, a go-between between the two. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life verily, righteousness should have been by the law. Hey, if anyone can earn their way to heaven by works, then show it to me. Show it to me. Can't be done. Verse 22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that what? Believe it's by faith. You're justified by faith. Now, check out verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed grace. So, what's the point of the law? Here's your answer in verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, our teacher, in other words, our principal. To bring us unto who? Christ. That we might be justified by faith. I won't beat a dead horse, but for those of you who don't know, go through the Ten Commandments and see how you stack up. You'll find yourself guilty. Maybe you can ask your friends about that. Just go through three of the Ten Commandments tomorrow and see how they stack up. And if they're guilty, the follow-up question you ask them is, does that concern you? Do you want to know what your punishment is for being guilty of God's law? For having broken His law? For being unclean? Do you want to know how you can be made clean? Do you want to know how you can have righteousness imputed into your account, free of charge? So that when God looks down at you from heaven, His account and your account reconcile together? You can show them the law. It brings them to Christ where they see their need for a Savior. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. You see, the law never superseded the promise that God made to Abraham. It's always been by faith. Point three. Next page. All those who receive the promise by faith are placed in Abraham's spiritual lineage. Do you guys get that? All those who receive the promise by faith are placed into Abraham's spiritual lineage. I have the next two verses up here on the screen of Romans chapter 4. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace your justification righteousness into your account to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed not to that only which is of the law Jews but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all in other words if you believe God what God says and it's accounted unto you for righteousness you did the exact same thing that Abraham did which means that you are of the faith of Abraham spiritually you do not become a Jew Very, very important. We'll see why when we get to chapter 9. But you are considered in Abraham's lineage. That's the reason why, and again, try to put yourself in the shoes of your VBS teachers trying to explain to you why on earth we sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Explain that to a third grader, second grader. Makes absolutely no sense because you have to go through all of this to explain how that works theologically but we still sing it because it is doctrinally sound. This is how you become a son of Father Abraham's, per se. Now look at, uh, we're in Galatians 3. Jump back over to verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, meaning that it was always God's plan to justify the lost through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying in thee shall all nations be blessed so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham last verse go to verse 29 and if ye be Christ's then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise you can flip back to Romans chapter 4 it'll be the last place we turn So why do we sing? Father Abraham had many sons? I am one of them, and so are you. So are you. Because if you believe what God says, that Jesus Christ was your propitiation, your substitute, and that He redeemed you, bought you back at the price of His own blood, if you believe that... God counts it to you as righteousness. He takes the righteous perfection of Christ, God's Son, and puts it into your account. And you are a son, spiritually speaking, of Father Abraham, because you believe and received the same promise that he did. This is some deep doctrinal stuff, so let me just ask right now, does that make sense, or is there any questions on that? Because you realize we actually take a full trimester in our Bible Institute over this entire book and there are still some people who graduate that class who say, I need to go back through that book because it's deep. So if you get that, thumbs up. Because this is pretty deep. Again, it's important for you guys to know what you believe, but it's even more so important to know why you believe what you believe. Because what saith the Scripture? Let God be true and every man a liar. Let's go with the book. Because when you know why you believe what you believe, you'll be able to defend it more. And when you're able to defend it more, you'll be able to... Oh, we're getting there to this close tonight. I don't want to jump too far ahead. You see, Father Abraham had many sons. But letter B, he had to trust God with all of his heart. And when he did, God was able to use him to do incredible things. And that's what God will use you for. When you know what you believe, when you know why you believe it, you'll be able to be a defender of the faith. You'll be able to rightly divide the word of truth. You will be able to stand strong with Him and not waver in your faith. Not struggle. A just man, according to Proverbs falls seven times and gets back up again. Are you on the sixth time and you feel like quitting? Hang in there. He had to trust God with all of his heart. Look at verse 17, Romans 4. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. What's he talking about there? We'll jump down to verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Whether he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb You know what God quickened or brought back to life? It was his old age, beyond childbearing years, and that of his wife. Because he was 90 plus years old when the promise came to him. And when he actually had Isaac, the impossible being done in his life. See, in point one, what did Abraham have to trust God with all of his heart on? To bring back to life that which was already dead. You can read about that in Genesis 17, 17. He had solid faith. Hebrews eleven eleven. Through faith also, Sarah, his wife, herself, received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful God who had promised solid faith. What else did he trust God with? Look at verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Hey, you want to know what is against hope? God telling you to take your only son by whom the promise is going to come through and killing him at the top of the mountain. That's against hope. But he believed in hope. Very next verse. Therefore sprang there even of one Isaac and him as good as dead. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Isaac was as good as dead. But Abraham against hope believed in hope. Hey, do you feel surrounded from time to time when you're in study hall, when you're in hallway? When you're on the team, do you feel absolutely surrounded as though everything is against you when it seems as though you're just against hope and there is no hope for you? Yeah, so did Abraham. But look what he did in verse 20. And he staggered not. He wasn't wavering at the promise of God through unbelief, but was what in faith? He was solid in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded, not a little bit, not a smidge of faith, no, fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for what? That's rock solid faith. As a result of that, he became a warrior of the faith. Point three. Thereby becoming a warrior of the faith. I love this verse. Talking about solid faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men. Be strong. You know what that word quit you like men means? It means man up. It means cowgirl up soldier up. That's what that means. And be strong. And here's its application for us today. You see, His righteousness must be imputed into your account by faith. Otherwise, you are spiritually bankrupt. And you owe a tremendous debt. Do you have righteousness imputed on your account? If not, you are bankrupt and you owe a tremendous debt. Look at verse 24. But for Us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. You want the faith of Father Abraham? You better not stagger. You better be fully persuaded. Who was delivered for our offenses, verse 25, and was raised again for our justification. Let me ask you this as we close. Have you believed in vain? I mentioned this passage several times, but 1 Corinthians 15, you know, 3 and 4, it's where we get the gospel. That Christ died according to our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again for our sins according, or rose again for, from the grave according to the Scriptures. But verse 2 before that says, hey, you're saved if you've not believed in vain. If your faith wasn't just an empty promise. You know what's interesting? Faith, when you think about it, really requires three components, knowledge, belief, and as a call back to last week's lesson, dependence. For example, picture you're drowning out in the middle of an ocean. You're shipwrecked, you're drowning, you have no hope. And then all of a sudden somebody tells you that they see a lifeboat, a lifeboat that's coming to rescue you. You have knowledge that a lifeboat is out there but knowledge of that is not enough to save you. You might believe that the lifeboat has power to save you as you watch as it saves others and transforms their life because they're getting into the boat. But that's still not enough to save you from drowning. You need dependence. You see, your knowledge of the existence of the lifeboat and your belief in its saving power, it's not enough unless you get into the boat and depend upon it to actually save you. And if you have that saving faith, your life will never be the same. Can you imagine if somebody actually was rescued, shipwrecked, as good as dead, drowning? and then a lifeboat came and saved them, you realize that their life would never be the same again. You'd be telling everybody about it. Guys, I was as good as dead. I was in the middle of the ocean. I'm not going to live my life the same way anymore. I, I'm different. I'm completely transformed. i got limited time left. I'm just going to make the most of it. Somebody in that situation, their life would be changed because they got in the boat and were saved and rescued. It's not enough just to know about the lifeboat. It's not enough just to believe that the lifeboat has saving possibilities. You have to depend upon it enough to actually get in the stinking thing. Otherwise, you're good as dead. I wonder if there's some of you in here who maybe you have known about salvation. You believe that God was able to save you for your sins but you never actually threw your dependence out upon Him and got in Christ. If that's the case, maybe your faith is in vain. And if that's the case, you got time right now to do business with Him. To really evaluate, was my faith in vain? Did I genuinely get saved? Has my life been different? Am I a warrior of the faith? Or do I stagger at promises? Do I stagger at this book? Am I not fully persuaded of the things that He promises for me? And is it not changing my life on a daily basis? might want to contemplate those things. Go ahead and bow your heads. Father, I pray right now that if there's anyone in here, and they're probably thinking back to that moment that they prayed a prayer. And again, they knew about You. They believed you had saving power, but they didn't cast their complete trust in you. They didn't exercise genuine faith. If that's the case, Lord, then I pray you would reveal it to them now whether or not righteousness has been imputed into their account. Has their life been changed? Do they have works that show that they belong to you? If not, Father, may the Spirit of God be moving just as He did on the face of the waters back at the beginning. And may you convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that they would call upon you, that they would put their complete faith and trust in Christ. It's a simple prayer of faith. Knowing they're a sinner, believing with all of their heart that Jesus died on the cross as payment for their sins and rose again. And calling upon you to save them. Father, may you do that now. May they be doing that right now. And may they have the courage to tell somebody about it. Father, for all of those Christians who are in here, I pray that they would have boldness to talk tomorrow about righteousness being imputed on someone else's behalf. And that somebody else would reckon up the facts and that they too would be genuinely saved. Use this ministry. Grow this youth ministry. Let them shine their lights in Christ's name. Amen.